flag for the American League Championship. I don't believe it. It just continues. My oh High fly ball into right field. She is gone. Oh, drives one. Two weeks to pay dirt. That's the way I'm looking at this right now. Pitchers and catchers report essentially the same weekend. College baseball is a full go big time college baseball. And you know what that means. Oh, hey, look, it's you. How you doing? Welcome to the FSS Plus podcast. Uh, Joe Doyle is here. I'm Jason Churchill. Lots going on in the baseball world. Uh, we have a trade to talk about, and we're going to do that. Um, did that one catch you by surprise, Mr. Doyle, by the way, just uh, right out of the gate here? Uh it seemed really obvious that Baltimore was a team that probably should have been out there trying to find a, a Dylan Cease or a Blake Snell or a Jordan Montgomery or a Corbin Burns, but uh, it did kind of come out of nowhere. We didn't hear any rumors, and then boom, here it is. It's done. I would say the industry has been kind of broadcasting the fact that Baltimore's they, they they have to make a deal. Like you have too much ammunition, you have an excess of ammunition. Um, you need starting pitching. I think maybe the interesting part was. You know, maybe the White Sox overplayed their hand a little bit with the Dylan Cease situation. And I would think the way Baltimore operates that, you know, maybe Dylan Cease is off the board now. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, that was, I think, the only interesting part of it was maybe Chicago kind of overplayed this whole thing and Corbin Burns became the better value. Yeah, interesting. It's two years of Cease, one year of Burns, so that is a little bit different. So we'll dig into that a little bit more. Uh also, uh, apart from Baltimore's angle, Milwaukee's angle, there's a free agent pitching angle to uh, to the uh, the Corbin Burns trade and the Dylan Cease uh, trade talks and all those rumors going around. So we'll dig into that as well. Blake Snell's still out there. Jordan Montgomery's still out there. Um, we got to talk about it until they sign because we're – I wouldn't say we're running out of time, but they're kind of running out of time unless they want to miss camp. So – uh, we'll dig into that a little bit as well. Uh, it's draft season, of course. So we'll check in with Joe on the 2024 class. We'll do that all year long, of course. But uh, in this episode, I want to I wanna pick your brain, Joe, on which prospects have improved their stock the most this offseason. I mean, nobody's played any actual real games since May or June. Um, your previous or your first board of the offseason was September, I believe it was at the end of September. So what's changed between now or then and now uh, with some of these top prospects? That's what I want to get from you. We'll dig into that as well. Uh, we'll add some insight to uh, the bats in the draft class. Uh, a piece you wrote, Joe, uh, it's at futurestarseries.com right now. Basketball, I think you put, I think you use the word murderers, which is just a, an yeah, amazing it's a good word. word to use. It's a good hard word. Uh, yeah, so they kill the they they kill the fastball, um, and that's always interesting. Um, so uh, so we'll talk about that as well. Uh, Joe does have his top thirties coming out in the next couple of weeks, so look for those at futurestarseries.com. That's team by team top thirties uh, and a top one hundred. Um, and I've had a sneak peek at some of these. Um, it's really interesting, and it's not the same thing you've seen across the industry uh, the past month or so. These are. Uh, um, a little bit different, I would say, is probably a good way to put it. Um, it's not like you have J uh, Jackson Holiday ranked 23rd, Joe, but there's always differences Worst. because uh, 
<laughs> he's not even a top 50 guy for you that would be you won't find his name on here i put a, no i'm not a fan of the holiday family keep him out and ethan's or gonna as, fall on my 25 board too or as i would put it there are at least 100 prospects in baseball better than jackson holiday for some reason i just like the word things that way i have no idea why i did it again last week all right um <laughs> so uh so we'll do that every week we're gonna have something draft related um here on the show because um I mean, it's kind of what Joe lives for. If we don't talk about the draft, Joe complains for like six, seven days afterward. I used Sometimes those exact water. same words, Jason, with my wife. I said, I live for <laughs> baseball. And she didn't like that. She didn't like it. Yeah, I would. No. Uh, I would think, Coming up would on our anniversary, that. she said, that's great, sweetheart. I'm just going to let that sit for a second. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so so here's what's great. If we were a uh, if we were at a commercial radio station, and we had a producer and engineer and and then all that, uh, that would be a drop for like for the next four years. You <laughs> yeah. you think that That's great, it would be a drop? We would use <laughs> yes, we would, we would use that constantly. Uh, all right, I want to get to Blake Snell, uh, Joe, but let's talk about the big trade first uh, because I think that's going to impact to some extent. Uh, Snell suitors and the overall uh, market. The Baltimore Orioles have acquired right-hander Corbin Burns from the Milwaukee Brewers uh, in exchange for left-hander D.L. Hall, infield prospect Joey Ortiz, and the number 34 overall pick in the 2024 draft. Now, that was the pick the O's were awarded in the competitive balance process. You can trade those picks, remember. Uh, Just to do some quick due diligence on those players, Joe, uh, Hall is 25. He was a first-rounder in 2017. Uh, he struggled throwing strikes, was moved to the bullpen, I believe it was two years ago, 2022 by the O's. I suppose, though, here, Joe, that the Brewers could say, hey, he's only 25. He was just moved to the bullpen two years ago. And while, yes, we like his potential in the pen, they could reevaluate in Milwaukee and say, let's give him another shot at starting. They may have an idea or two that helps him throw strikes a little bit more. That could be part of the plan here um, because the stuff is not the issue with D.L. Hall. Am I right? I mean, yeah, but if you rewind that tape and you say he's only tw- like he's twenty five, that's mm-hmm. not a young prospect. That's a, you know, that's a guy that's about to graduate next year, regardless of sure. whatever happens this year, whether or not he uh, he gets any time at the big league club. So, like, like this. Listen, I, I think some people want to see whether or not this guy can be Jesus Lazardo. Some people want to see, you know, maybe they think he's. Josh Hader, uh, that kind of brings back shades of Josh Hader. I personally think he's going to end up being something of a uh, of an AJ Puck, which is fine. I mean, that's a valuable player. It's an eighth inning guy. Um, we've got him a roll five guy, just a solid contributor on a on a uh, division winning team. And you'll see that you'll see rolls for every player on the top thirty when our boards release next week. I think that's been something that has kind of delayed the the push out of those. We want to make sure that we're kind of nailing down how we're projecting these guys out. But with DL Hall, it's like, where's the strike throwing ability? He's 25. That hasn't really taken a step in the right direction. I'm interested to see if if they actually give him a shot to start. Uh, that was a ship that I thought sailed in, in 2021. Um, great arm. Just you don't really know what you're going to get out of him. Yeah, you got to have a plan for him if you're going to do that. Um, I wouldn't rule it out. Um, I wouldn't rule it out. You can always go back. That's the thing, too. You can always go back to the relief part. I mean, it's not like he's yeah. been a reliever and you're, you're going completely in the other direction. It's not like you're asking a, 
uh, a first baseman to play shortstop here. Uh, 25 years old. Eh, we'll see. Uh, Ortiz is also 25, made his big league debut this past season, got a, a cup of coffee, didn't do a whole lot, but it was a small uh, sample. And from what I can gather, he's he's a guy who there's really no doubt he can play shortstop. He runs well, makes contact, projects to hit for average, probably firmly below average power. Um, is there anything there that's missing? Uh, I think it's a really interesting get, and I'll get to that in a second. But uh, what else you got on Ortiz? I think I've cooled a little bit on Ortiz over the last year. You know, the the bumps and bruises and the nagging injuries and missing time here and there. And, you know, he's been challenged with actually staying on the dirt, staying healthy. Um, you combine that with the fact that he's probably settled in now as a utility player going forward. You know, listen, maybe Milwaukee has plans for Joey Ortiz if and when Willie Adamas isn't with the team in 2025. I think that's a totally reasonable possibility. He hasn't shown the ability to stay on the field playing the six. And when you tell me that he's not a surefire shortstop, there's durability issues. It's probably three game power. I don't know. I mean, like, I, I want to say he's probably a roll 45 rover utility type who provides a lot of value, but never really impacts the big league ball club. Like, like, I think you'd like to see him do that. If you were the Brewers here and you mentioned Willie Adamas. With Ortiz on the roster, even if you think he's just a fringe regular, uh, with Terang on the roster, and with where you are in your process as as the the Brewers, you know they obviously moved Burns, um, Woodruff is gone, um, you know they let let some other guys go, some other smaller pieces go. This is obviously a team in transition. The writing's been on the wall for months that Adamus is not going to be here long term. This may give them the opportunity to literally start the season without. Willie Adamas on the roster uh, didn't have a great year, so it may behoove them to you know, let's see if he can have a couple of strong months before we put him back out there on the market. But I gotta think that if there's a contender out there that has uh, a need at shortstop, like that's a guy you might be able to go get now that Milwaukee's made the deal they have. I mean, even if it's a team that doesn't have a need at shortstop, you know, if you I've got got a team that has a need for impact at second base or kind of have different fringy options. Yeah, I mean, even fringy options at third base, like the offensive profile can play at third base. No problem. Um, I would be surprised if they didn't at least float him for the next month or for, for the next three weeks while we approach spring training. But then again, you know, while Milwaukee has always kind of trimmed the fat in terms of getting rid of some pieces to extend the window, they've also been a team that has put a lot of priority in extending the window. And I think Willie Adamas, especially in the NL Central, that has gotten a little bit better uh, with the Reds. And I, I think the Cubs are going to end up landing Cody Bellinger at some point here. Um, you want to give yourself the best chance to succeed in that division. And I would just be surprised if they moved Adamus at this point, because it it does make the margins razor thin to, to stay competitive. Yeah. So one thing too, about the Milwaukee Brewers moving on from Adamus, they have Devin Williams, one of the better relievers in Major League Baseball, and he's he's pretty unique. I mean, it's mid-90s, but it's an absolute nasty changeup. Um, doesn't really throw much else, but doesn't really need much else. Uh, they signed him to a uh, – uh, he's, he's got basically a two-year deal. Uh, he's got a $10.5 million club option for next year with a very small buyout. He's making $7 million in, uh, in 2024 coming up here. That's a tradable commodity also 
that's going to have value. And I was talking to some folks earlier in the week, considering where Corbin Burns is on the trend line, there's some folks out there that think Devin Williams might bring back more than Corbin Burns did, which I thought was really interesting. I don't necessarily think they're crazy, though. And if I'm Milwaukee, I'm absolutely shopping Devin Williams, too. What would you give up for Devin Williams? If you're the uh, if you're a club out there that needs a guy, if you're the Rangers, if you're the uh, if you're the Angels, if you're uh, the Twins that, that don't have a dominant bullpen with a couple of guys at the back end that can slam the door, uh, what are you paying for Devin Williams? What is he worth? And maybe kind of tie that into what the Orioles paid to get Corbin Burns a starter. Yeah, without knowing how many years and dollars are left on the Devin Williams deal, I, I wish I, I could pull that up in front of me or the producer. Yeah, could. it's 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 <laughs> two years. It's two years and seventeen and a half million dollars. But next year's a club option. So if he's terrible or he gets hurt, it's a two hundred fifty thousand okay. dollar buyout. It's a pretty safe deal. You'd pay him seven million this year, and uh, and if things go well, he's probably going to be worth ten and a half million next year. So two and seventeen and a half, or it's one and seven plus two hundred fifty thousand dollar buyout. Well, I mean, at the end of the day, you're always going to get more for a a starting pitcher who posts innings than than you would otherwise. Now, I look at it like this. Devin Williams has been one of the most dynamic relievers in baseball. Two and a half or 2.2 F4 in 2022, 1.8 F4 in 2023. I mean, that's that's significant for a reliever. You don't see those types of numbers. Um, Corbin Burns worth about 3.4. So, you know, still about double that. I think you could probably, especially with the club option, I think you could probably get what you got or something in the ballpark of what you got for Corbin Burns. Maybe you don't get the comp A pick, but I think you could probably get a top 100 prospect and another top 150, top 200 type for Devin Williams. Two years of a of an eighth inning guy, two, two years of a possible ninth inning guy um, who hasn't really shown any signs of slowing. I think, listen, I, we're, we're in an era now in baseball and it's been like this for a few years now where i just think bullpens are the way teams are are configuring to win baseball games nobody's scoring runs you know it's 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 a lot of home runs there's not a lot of uh not a lot of hit tool out there right now even though it is kind of coming back a little bit so i think he i think they would pay a lot my, my question for you though jason i'll throw this back at you that the brewers were reluctant for a long time to move josh Hader because they felt he was a key piece how long do they wait for Devin Williams? Yeah, that's the thing. When you look at um, when you look at Josh Hader, like like he did spend his was it just the last year and a half in San Diego? I believe that's a this is yeah. about the time that they that they traded Devin Williams as well. Ish. So you got to think if they they move along the same timeline, uh, and every player is a little bit different. They may be a little bit different, you know, age wise and things like that. Maybe different concerns um, about their performance or their health, but. Yeah, this would be about the time that they probably started thinking about moving Hader and they moved him at the deadline in this, the, the same year that we're about to enter with Devin Williams. But when you compare, for me, when you compare Devin Williams to Corbin Burns, Burns most likely is going to cover more innings because uh, he's probably going to go a buck 75. And, you know, Williams is probably only over the next two years is only going to go maybe a buck 20, buck 25. Um, but for me, he has a chance to impact. Uh, a lot of games, even though it's fewer innings. And I think Burns is on the wrong trend line. Like right now, you can argue that Williams just had his best season, even though from a from a 
wins above replacement standpoint, he didn't. Uh, I'm big on uh, uh, win probability when it comes to uh, relievers. I really like that number for relievers. It reflects, it really matches the eye test uh, and the feel test. When when you feel out a season and you watch relievers and you're like, dang, you know, and then you look at win probability. So I'm really big on that. And he was huge in 2023, 29 years old. Uh, for me, I, I would value two years of Williams at least as much as I would value one year of Burns. Now, if you change that starting pitcher and you told me that starting pitcher was 27, 28 years old and was trending up, I'd feel a lot differently. I'd absolutely feel it. Or if you told me it was Garrett Cole for one year, absolutely a lot differently. But because it's Burns and I'm not necessarily buying vintage best of his career Corbin Burns, I'm all over this Devin Williams idea. Yeah, I think I would want a, a, a pretty decent um, – Farm systems. I'd want two guys from their top, you know, eight or so uh, that were pretty close to the big leagues, and then I'd probably want a third guy from from their top fifteen, or maybe even a big league player to come back. Uh, that's a guy who's going to help. I look at it this way: even teams that are not contending, Joe, um, when the when the player at hand, when the player in question, Devin Williams in this case, is not a free agent at the end of the year, it still makes sense for you to go get him. You could tell me the Washington Nationals just go, they went and traded for Devin Williams. They gave up like a couple of prospects to do him. It could very well make a lot of sense for them to do that. In a lot of ways, it could not make sense for them to do that too. It could look very strange. But man, you get a guy like that who's pitching the way he's pitched for the last four or five years, you get him at the deadline and you get all these contenders salivating, you're going to get everything you gave up, you know, six months before. Would, you're going to get it all back. You're yeah, going to get it all back at the wait. deadline. I would yeah. just wait and, and, until July. And that might be the reason why Milwaukee waits as well. Absolutely. Just like they did mm -hmm. with Hater. So uh, but that's going to be yeah, interesting. You know, There's really nobody there left in Milwaukee they need to protect that's making any money. My thing, I, I think back to the Hater trade, and I just, one of the biggest narratives around that trade was, well, they have Devin Williams to cover the eighth and ninth inning. They have. So I'm looking at this roster. But they're also trying to I'm, contend, though. You know, it's a little different now. They're really not yeah. right now. Uh, you think so? I, I, I don't know, man. Like, Who's good, who's I'm not saying they're trying right to overachieve. Now. I'm not saying they're going to overachieve, but I still think they have some pieces to go out there and win 85, 86 games, and with a stroke of luck, you know, touch 89 or 90. 85, 86 in the next two years? I'll buy that. I'm not buying no, I think next year. year. Well, look at the division who, that they play in, man. I mean, it's it's not exactly a. Well, I mean, I mean, it's Freddie Peralta, and then and then you got to go to Wade Miley and Joe Ross, man. Like that, that is that's not an eighty-five win team. Now, maybe they go out and make well, moves that they haven't made. What about, maybe they sign Blake now. DL I don't Hall. know. <laughs> what about DL Hall? <laughs> like right now, no, but to my to my point, that MLB has Colin Ray and Robert Gasser in their rotation. If that gives you any, Joe Ross is their number three starter right now. That's the problem. My Otherwise, I'd is, be with you. My thing is, it's like it's like a bunch of they're like the, the NL Central is like starving people that are cannibalizing. Like there's no there's no alpha there. It's just a bunch of teams that are all hoping to kind of win 84 games. And, you know, by a stroke of luck, if the Brewers win, you know, if the Brewers take eight of 13 from everybody in their division, they go eight and five against the whole division. You know, you're setting yourself up to win 86, 87 games. I, and asking you know lot, Christian Yelich, Christian, yeah, but Christian Yelich has been trending back in the right direction, and he stayed a little bit more healthy last year. Adamus could have a bounce back year. 
I love their outfield. I mean, I'm a huge fan of uh, of Garrett Mitchell. I hope that he comes back and the shoulder is, is full health. And, you know, Frelick is probably going to have a more comfortable year. And um, Joey Weimer is, is, is just a monster breakout candidate waiting to happen. My point is, they've got some pieces. And Tyler Black is right on the horizon. Brock Wilkin could make his debut this year. They're right on the horizon of being able to put together and maybe this is 2025, but they're on the horizon of being able to put together another competitive window. But my thing with Devin Williams moving is when they moved Josh Hader, they had Devin Williams. Mm -hmm. I don't think you can put the same amount of confidence in Abner Uribe, who was, you know, he throws 103, like it was tremendous last year. I got the perfect I don't know how they close at the end of the year. Because you're right, you're right. When you compare that, if you are trying to compete, you're probably not trading Williams unless you're not competing. So you get to the deadline if you're not competing. Sure, you, you might trade Williams. Gives you an opportunity to replace him over the offseason or work on guys. But I'm I'm going to do the same thing you just did with the DL Hall, man. Like DL Hall is the savior. Trade Devin Williams. You got DL Hall. He can start for you, and he can relieve for you. It's so DL Hall is just limited. he's the trump card in this conversation, huh? Yeah. So it, really quickly, uh, and we'll move on here. But if the Brewers hadn't signed Reese Hoskins because that's the Forgot only significant. Hoskins. That's the only significant addition they've made. I mean, they're this offseason. Everything, everything else has been players going out. Like, if I took that away, I mean, this this still might be the worst team in the division. It might be. You really think might be so the worst hard. team in the division. It could be. I'm not saying that it definitely is. I'm saying it could still be the worst team that just because of that pitching staff. Freddie Peralta, Wade Miley, and Joe Ross, like, man, like at least the Reds went out. And, Wade and, Miley and did a bunch. Of Wade stuff, Miley right? has been a serviceable. Wade Miley has at Here times he has. he's been, been serviceable. He's your second four. best guy, though. He's your second best guy, and he should be your five, right? Like, maybe that's it's not, not twenty four. Maybe maybe the the brighter days are the second half of twenty four and twenty five when you have Gasser and Mizirowski coming up, and and you know you have a predefined role for DL Hall like maybe they have some question marks that they need to iron out here I just don't th- like I look at that I look at that lineup one through nine and there's a lot of opportunity for breakout and maybe pitching is not going to be their strong suit but also kind of like Seattle like I'm never going to count out the Milwaukee pitching staff like they always post it might not be electric like it was three years ago but they always post so it's by right now as it stands, it's it's definitely by far the worst rotation in the division. St. Louis went out and got guys, including Sonny Gray. Even if you look at that Reds with all the uh, all the volatility in that Reds rotation, I would take that Reds rotation right now. Hunter Green coming back, Nick Lodolo, Ashcraft, uh, Frankie Montas, Abbott, Brandon Williamson, Connor Phillips. I would take that group ahead of the current Brewers right now i would too i'm not saying there's a lot of upside in the brewers rotation not right now. and maybe they're going to make a deal or two maybe maybe they're just like we need to make sure burns is gone because maybe salary wise they just didn't want to get stuck with having signed a guy and the guy that's only going to be here for years so maybe we see him anyway uh that trade joe i i think we've talked about the dylan cease thing quite a bit uh, that trade, I think, I don't want to say it gave us a roadmap or gave us a, a blueprint, but it will give us an idea of what a year of about that good of a pitcher is going to cost you. Now, there are folks out there that are like, wow, if that's all Corbin Burns is going to cost you, um, 
then De- you can get Devin Williams for a song and a half, which isn't true. And I, I think there's one aspect of this. Uh, even if you like Joey Ortiz as, as about an average regular and you think D.L. Hall still has a chance to start, I think there's an aspect of that deal that maybe some folks are underrating, and that's the draft pick, the number 34 overall pick. Uh, talk about that and how you're kind of thinking about that inclusion in the deal and the value of that, because that ultimately might end up being the most valuable piece to this deal for the Milwaukee Brewers moving forward. I think it's going to be the most valuable piece. If you just look at this from from a – from a you know player value perspective, what Joey Ortiz was like a fourth round pick. Uh, DL yeah. Hall, I know, was a pretty high pick, but he's kind of you know stalled out a little bit as a, as a reliever. You look at what the value of the thirty fourth pick is in any draft. Last year, it was worth two and a half million dollars. Two and a half million dollars can get you just about any high school player that's outside of the say top five or six high schoolers in, in any class. Um, it can land you any college player that's on the board. Let's look at last year. Let's And I know last year was a really good class, but you know, some of the guys taking around 34, Josh Noth, who is a, one of the Brewers top prospects, Charlie Soto, who's a top five or six prospect for the twins, mm-hmm. Thomas white, who's considered the top left-hander in the class in 2025, mm-hmm. uh, 2023, Kendall George, Kevin McGonigal. These are very high-profile high schoolers, and that's generally the range. That comp A, that second pick, that's generally the range where teams stock up on high schoolers because there's always a run on them. So on, so one, one thing about acquiring the comp A pick is it's not you're not acquiring a player. You're acquiring the player that you want to acquire. You're acquiring the player that you believe your player development system, which might I add the Brewers player development system, one of the best in the game. They get a mm-hmm. lot of value out of players that they develop. They can take whoever they want. And, and you look at some of the guys that are currently on the future stars board in that, in that 30 to 35 range, you got uh, Anthony Silva, Caleb Lomavita, Michael Massey, the right-hander from Wake Forest, Ben Hess, the right-hander from Alabama. If you're looking at high schoolers, number 30, the top, uh, the top high school pitcher on our board, Levi Sterling, uh, mm-hmm. Noah Franco, Joa Oki, Ryan Sloan. Mm, my, like my point is, yeah, like you can get a ton of value with that pick. And while you're probably not going to see that person play or pitch for the team until at least August of 2024, whoever they select with that pick will probably have a much, much higher ceiling than what Ortiz or uh, DL Hall is going to provide the team in the uh, in the long run. I, you know, really quickly, I'll end with this. I almost sent out a tweet yesterday, <laughs> almost, and then I <laughs> decided choice. not to. It, reflecting on this trade, like Joey Ortiz probably doesn't have impact upside. DL Hall probably doesn't have like impact foundational pillar upside. Sure. Yep. The number thirty four pick could also. And you've mentioned this, the other side of it, Corbin Burns has declined year over year over year. And he's still posting, you know, solid number three starter numbers. He's also mm-hmm. owed $16 million. The, definitely I think a factor. The thing that, definitely a factor. I think the thing that Twitter doesn't, like, there always has to be a winner. Everything I just said mm-hmm. is true. Like, I think it's a fine deal for both sides. Yeah. I don't I know do why... I don't know why Brewers fans 
thought that they could get some, you know, organizational superstar out of this with, with one year of a guy who's owed $16 million. And on the flip side, you know, the, the Orioles, I think Orioles fans are kind of, I think they're dreaming that Corbin Burns is still a one. And I don't personally see yeah. it unless he gets back on the horse. Yeah, there's a there's a tick or so since his 2021 season. He's lost a tick of fastball velocity. Maybe that's not a real thing, but in performance, all the runs allowed metrics, he lost a half a run or more in from 21 to 22. He lost about a half a run, sometimes more, depending on which runs allowed metric uh, you use. Uh, going from 22 to 23, when you look at wins above replacement, he went from 7.5 to 4.6 to 3.4, despite still throwing 193 and two-thirds innings. There's a difference in performance there um, that, that's come down. He's still very good, and, and there's no reason why he can't bounce back a little bit and be better in 2024. But, yeah, it's just one year. It's $16 million. There's some risk. It's a pitcher. Uh, I like the I like the deal. I, I thought Baltimore did, did well. To be honest with you, if I'm Baltimore, here's what I was told before – uh, before we went on the show, that they were talking players and Milwaukee was stuck on one of our favorite players, Joe, uh, from that uh, that Orioles uh, organization and Mac Horvath and Baltimore was like, we're not doing that. So it came down to, well, Horvath or 34 and they gave up 34. So I thought that was very, very interesting. Uh, they were trying to get arms too, the Seth Johnsons of the world and that just, and, and, and Cade Povich and that just was never, that just wasn't flying. Uh, so they settled on Horvath and then Baltimore backed off. And so they traded 34 Horvath just in last year's draft, if I'm not mistaken, was the 53rd overall pick. So it seems the, the Brewers valued 34 and last year's 53rd overall pick relatively the same. So to give you an idea of like maybe yeah. how much deeper last year's class was, but about how good the 34th pick is projected to be by at least one club. So that just goes to show the point you were making. There's a lot of good players to get and player development these days is incredible. You can get, I mean, how many times have we seen guys? I mean, even over the years, uh, you know, Albert Pujols was what, like a 13th round pick or something like that. We've seen too much of that to, to, to kind of stick our nose up at the 34th overall pick. If I'm the Brewers, I'm happy with the deal. If I'm the Orioles, I'm happy with the deal. And that just should be it. Uh, am I crazy? One it other seems angle. like you agree. I mean, one other angle, look at it this way. Jacob Mizierowski is a top 30 prospect in the game in a lot of circles. He was the 63rd pick in that draft and in 2022, and he got 2.35 million as a Juco guy, way over slot. But I mean, he's a tremendous example of the type of value that you can get. How about Tyler Black? How about, um, yeah, Tyler Black was their comp A pick in 2021. He's now a top 100 prospect. He got 2.2 million. We'll go one more year just to show what the Brewers can do with some of these picks in the draft. Uh, Milwaukee Brewers. So 2020, I didn't have a they didn't have a comp A pick, but Joey Weimer, who is a staple in Milwaukee, was given 150 thousand dollars in the fourth round that year. So, I mean, here, listen. Here's my point. If you look at it like this, think of it as the Brewers got Joey Ortiz, DL Hall, and Jacob Mizierowski for Connor mm -hmm. Burns, or think of it as yeah. Tyler Black, DL Hall, and Joey Ortiz for Corbin Burns. That's a haul, and it's 18 yeah. control years of those guys for a guy that is going to make a lot of money this year for one, one year. year on the decline. One year, yep, and and it was going to cost deal. you $25 million a year to keep 
provided that he's healthy this year anyway. So yeah, there's uh that that's the thing. The, the whole one year thing, it that's really tough. Uh that's really tough. Um that's why I think the uh the the Dylan C situation isn't necessarily clarified by the Corbin Burns situation because um Dylan C does have two years left. Um and while he didn't have a great 2023, a lot of the metrics suggest like it was just right here. Like literally the curveball went south or we're talking about the same exact guy from like every metric uh, you can possibly pull up in Dylan C. So teams out there that are trying to get Dylan C's or considering Dylan C's and the White Sox themselves are thinking, we still think this is the same guy from 2022 or at least close to it. Uh, and they're probably asking for 250% of what the, the the Orioles gave up for Corbin Burns. Um, so I don't think it gave us clarity, but it does give us an idea of what a club will value of a similar pitcher for the one year. But when you're looking at that two years of control and what's the big difference? You mentioned, what was it, $16 million Corbin Burns is going to make, give or take? Just about. Well, yeah. Well, Dylan Cease isn't going to make that much in 2024. And that alone matters. Even though you get him for a second year, Dylan Cease's 2024 salary is different. With the two years of control left, he's got that extra year. Uh, he's making half of what Corbin Burns is making this year. That matters. And I imagine that mattered to the Baltimore Orioles too, just not more than what the cost was going to be. So we'll see what what happens with Dylan Cease. I think maybe a little light was shed on, on the cost for Dylan Cease or what the cost should be for Dylan Cease, but not entirely. And 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 it does suggest that the Chicago White Sox are asking an awful lot for him. All right, uh, let's talk about free agency and how this may impact the Blake Snells of the world and, for that matter, Jordan Montgomery. When the offseason started, Joe – there were three main, like proven starting pitchers we were thinking about in terms of the trade market. There were a ton of them on the on the open market. Uh, the, you know, Aaron Nola, obviously, uh, Otani at the top, uh, Yamamoto at the top, uh, Stroman, and guys like that in the middle. Uh, Sonny Gray on the short term deals. But here's Blake Snell and Jordan Montgomery on the free agent market still. But the three guys on the trade market were Tyler Glass now, Dylan Cease, and Corbin Burns. Two of those guys have been traded. And it sounds like maybe that third guy, maybe he may not get moved until the deadline. Blake's, it's time. Like Blake Snell and Jordan Montgomery, there's really not a whole lot left. Teams don't really have a whole lot of leverage left. The players are starting to run out of leverage. It's a very, very interesting uh situation uh but with burns being moved now if you're a club out there looking for impact starting pitching you're kind of down to, to to cease and and snell and montgomery at this point and you know from a team standpoint joe let me ask it to you this way how do you view this this stalemate from a team uh standpoint on blake snell specifically because i think the conversations between montgomery and snell are are quite different why hasn't a team stepped up and paid blake snell and, I, and, and to be honest with you just to preface that a little bit I'm not really talking about, well, we don't really know. Like we've talked about like Blake's now. We know he's not the Cy Young guy every year, but there's still a market value on him that no team seems to have come even remotely close to unless you believe he's only a $100 million pitcher. And I got to be honest with you, I call hogwash on that. If Robbie Ray can get $110, $115 million in the market two years ago, Blake Snell should be able to get at least 130 in this year's market. That's where I stand. So if you're a team, what is it? What's the hang up here? I mean, do you think it is the player or do you think it's the agent? There's one common thread with all these free agents that are left. Mm. Scott Boris. Yeah. And yeah, Scott yeah. Boris 
Scott, Scott Boris has fumbled the bag. I mean, Carlos Correa should be a quarter billion dollar like human being. Like he should be on yeah. a quarter billion dollar contract. And that didn't happen. Cody Bellinger, um, while while the one year prove it deal with Chicago went well for him, he still got a one year deal as a what twenty seven year old outfielder with a plus glove. So my point is like Scott Boris, while Scott Boris can do, you know, Marcus Semien, Corey Seeger type things, and you know, he can do Kamar Rocker and Brock Porter type things, package deals, be a really creative guy that that mm-hmm. runs a draft room, runs a front office. He's out of he's out of options, man. Like he's out of he's out of leverage. He's out of uh, a bidding war. So I think it's just a matter of Scott Boris and all of his clients waited too long. But what, my it, question it seems, for you is, where do these guys? Does it go? seem to you they shot too high early? Does it seem to to maybe with Snell that they shot too high? Because because if you told me at the beginning of the the off season, Aaron Nola is going to get out. Don't tell me where he goes. It doesn't matter. Aaron Nola's going to get about a buck seventy five for seven years. I would be like, all right, well then Snell, you know, he's got to get at least one fifty, one sixty. He he could even get one hundred and eighty. That that's what I would have said. He outperformed Aaron Nola in at, at age thirty in twenty twenty three. Won the Cy Young, was the best pitcher in the league. Um, I would have thought he'd be able to at least get you know within ten or fifteen percent of Aaron Nola. And now it seems like that's a pipe dream, and that's just that's weird to me. Uh, I don't know that it's a Boris thing. Uh, maybe it is. Uh, that's if I'm a team though, like I'm, I still want Blake Snell on my team, right? Like if I'm, and I know the Mets are probably done, but it's like, if I'm the Mets, if I'm, you know, the Dodgers are probably out having added a couple of guys already, but if I'm the giants, I still want Blake Snell. Why haven't I just given him the one thirty or whatever? So there's gotta be a reason. So the reason is uh, either the player and the agent are asking for $40 million more than that or more or too many years times too much AAV, so everything's out of whack, or the player, and this is what I was told, and I think I mentioned this to you a week or two ago, Blake Snell is being very careful about the team he chooses. Very careful. And I don't know that it's about, I I don't know exactly what it's about. I don't know that it's about wants to make sure he goes somewhere that has a chance. I don't know that that's it. Wants to make sure that he goes somewhere certain weather or certain part of the country. He's from the Seattle area or somewhere that he's familiar with or somewhere where where he believes in the you know the pitching coach the I don't know what those those factors are but that he's being very very careful when you go and gather buzz on Blake Snell you will find the Giants the Yankees and the Angels as the most mentioned now the most mentioned doesn't really mean anything but those are the teams that keep coming up there are two other teams and maybe a third that also kind of sort of keep coming up, just not as often. One of them is the Phillies, Joe. Continue to get mentioned for Blake's now, which is really interesting because they have Wheeler, they have Painter and Mick Abel coming, and they just brought back brought back Aaron Nola. Adding Blake Snell to that roster in Philadelphia would be a lot of fun uh, for those Phillies fans. I would love to see that as well. And the Blue Jays are the other one, which is another interesting. They already have a pretty decent rotation. Um, they just signed Justin Turner to kind of shore up their uh, their lineup. But Blake Snell in Toronto is interesting too. Let me throw another one at you, and this is one close to home for the both of us. We've talked about how out of whack, out of reach, unrealistic it seems for Blake Snell to sign with his hometown Mariners team. 
But I got to tell you, the way people keep bringing this up, there might actually be something to it. Like both sides are trying to make it happen. We're running out of time a little bit. And it does sound strange considering the payroll freeze placed by ownership on the Seattle Mariners in November. But I'd, I'd say there's been at least three, maybe four different people that have told me, well, this is a thing. Like this is a thing. Like they're trying to figure out ways to make this happen. Uh, I've dismissed it up to now and maybe I shouldn't be. And, and it's certainly still unlikely, but there may be something to it. So maybe, maybe Snell's hanging out, you know, kind of waiting around for the right deal. And maybe he's waiting to make sure that his hometown team isn't the one that's going to be able to give him the deal he wants. I mean, I got my palms up right now because that, you know, that's how Jason. far we're reaching at this point. Jason, you know, our audience, this is going to be an issue. <laughs> Why is this going to be an issue? This is going to get, this is going to get some play, <laughs> but anyways, I think you're right. I don't know. What, um, I don't know what to tell you, man. There are people out there that say it's getting done. There's no reason. There's no reason that Blake Snell should still be on the market. And I'll throw one other aspect at you. Like because he didn't sign in December or November before the holidays. And because he's still on the market through January, we're now at the point where I think teams have had ample enough opportunity to kind of poke holes and, and, you know, circle red flags and say, we could give him this, but what about the Walker? Like, what about this? He, he can no longer really be compared to other options with the exception of Jordan Montgomery. And so all of a sudden those red flags and concerns, they kind of, they, they, they rear their head a little bit louder than they would have otherwise. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, like, listen, would Seattle be interested in Blake Snell at three years and $54 million just because he wants to play at home and he gets 18 mil a year for three? Like, yes. And is that probably low? Yes. But my point is, I think Blake Snell, I just, man, I get the feeling Blake Snell is going to take a deal. He's going to be the guy that takes the deal that shocks everyone this year. You know, there's always a guy that's like, whoa, that came in way under bait. Like, I think he's going to be the one that comes in under under his key. Maybe it's four years and seventy five million, whatever. But let me throw one more team at you before we kind of move on mm -hmm. here. Seattle just makes a deal with Minnesota. Yep. Minnesota obviously needs pitching. I think that's mm -hmm. abundantly clear. Um, they apparently shored up seven million dollars, eight million dollars in payroll space. Is it possible yep. that Minnesota, I mean, they swept in for Carlos Correa. Mm -hmm. Is it possible Minnesota comes in with a four-year, $85 million option for for Blake Snell and, and surprises everyone? It wouldn't surprise me at all. Yeah, when you project that rotation right now, what is it? Pablo Lopez, Joe Ryan, and Bailey Ober? Like, I don't think they have yeah. anything else that they know is going to be healthy to start the year. My eight is gone. Um yeah, Sonny Gray is gone. So they certainly need someone. That's a good pull right there. The thing with um the thing with Snell and his contract, though, it's like like at the end of the day, as long I guess as long as you still have the Giants in their serious, the Yankees in their serious, the Angels in their serious, and the Phillies and the Blue Jays on the outside, the fringe of this, like you still have a you still have a, a chance to get the deal that you kind of wanted or 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 that was right in the first place. Like not necessarily $200 million. I saw somebody the other day saying, what is, what does Blake Snell want? $275 million. Well, I mean, I do. <laughs> Don't you, Don't you want $275 million? Of course. But what did they think was realistic when the, when the off season started? 
I don't know, it's got maybe $200 million, right? And that may be gone. But it still seems to me that when you have those teams engaged, you can still get 130 million bucks. You can still get 140 million bucks. Um, yeah. And I still think five and 130 is a good deal on on Blake Snell. I also look at it this way. We can bring uh, Jordan Montgomery into, into this conversation too really quick. Jordan Montgomery is reliable, okay? He's not the game-to-game, -game, consistent, dominant performer that at times in his career Blake Snell is, just like last year, just like, what, five years ago, 2018, 2019, whatever it was when he won the signing the first time and was a four-plus-one pitcher. You know, he, he, Jordan Montgomery's different. Uh, he's reliable. He's going to give you 180-plus innings pretty much every year. He's been healthy, throws strikes, and he's peaking right now in his career. Unlike Corbin Burns, Montgomery is heading north. Uh, I look at what Eduardo Rodriguez got, Joe, from the Arizona Diamondbacks, 4-80. and 80. For a guy who's not as good as Blake Snell, and he's not as good as Jordan Montgomery, he's, he's a little bit of Montgomery and a little bit of snub. He's not as good as either guy at either thing. So if he can get four and eighty from the Diamondbacks, the floor on Montgomery should be five and a hundred. So so why are why how do we get to the point where Blake Snell to go to the team that he kind of wants to has to take four and seventy five? You know what I mean? It's just weird well, how we've got. And I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm not saying you're wrong because yeah. maybe he just wants to play for a certain team in a certain situation really really bad. But how did this happen? This is really really. And I'm the guy that was really low. If you asked me before the 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 free agency started. I would have said the two guys that I think are overrated in this market are Blake Snell and Matt Chapman. And I still think at this point, if Snell doesn't get at least $100 million, something really bad happened, and I don't like it. And I don't think it fits, and I don't think it's right. Well, I think for that to happen, it has to have been on Blake Snell or, or Scott Boris. I mean, Scott Boris is holding the, cord, the cards this long. Mm -hmm. I mean, this long. He is caught – like. Blake Snell should have been off the market before Marcus Stroman. There's so many yeah. more red flags with Marcus Stroman in terms of, you know, what the second half looked like for him last year, a back injury. He got mm -hmm. 20 million bucks a year. You know, mm -hmm. like Blake Snell should be off the market. This you 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 alluded to this at the beginning. This screams Blake Snell is is holding out. Is holding mm -hmm. out hope. He's holding yeah. out the idea that his hometown team is going to come in with a late last ditch effort. They're trying to make it work. He's been so public about his admiration for the city. You know, I found it. I just, I personally found it strange. And I think I texted this to you. I found it strange that he raised the 12th man flag for a Seahawks game. And he was mm -hmm. highlighted at a Seattle yeah. Kraken game. And he's, yeah. he, he talks so much about, the Mariners, specifically the Mariners, on his on his on his Twitch channel, right? It just he's a gamer, feels to that's me right. like he's, yeah. well, it just feels to me like he has tried to force this thing to happen so badly. And yeah. um, I will say this, and I know we've kind of hit on this all winter. If Blake Snell is is truly willing to come to Seattle on a considerable discount, and that ownership group isn't willing to move some pieces around to bring home a hometown guy who has mm. been a, a a good representation of the city and the sport that's a huge missed opportunity because what's the one thing that seattle has struggled with over the years in free agency it's just free agency people. jason yeah it's just, just, just the whole it's the, it's the idea of free agency yeah 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 so so here's if the you thing, have here's a the thing, premium guy that they don't wants need, to be here they don't need him on a discount though that's the thing they don't need him on a discount they just need a deal 
that's just long enough for them to manipulate like the the short-term salary. Because if they're going to have restrictions that it appears they're going to have in Seattle this year, which is give or take 140, 145, we don't know exactly what the numbers. We're all guessing. Uh, Jerry Depoto keeps saying it's going to be higher than it was a year ago, and it was about 140 million dollars a year ago. So if it's higher than a year ago, they got they have 10 million more to go. But maybe that means they can go to 145. That just means that in the first year of a deal. Blake Snell's salary would be significantly lower and you'd have to make up make it up to him on the back end. That Robbie Ray deal, yeah. Joe, that brought back Mitch Hanniger, which impacts this year. You didn't you didn't save a bunch of money this year. It was basically a wash this year. But shedding that Robbie Ray contract for for a couple of years after 2024 is going to help their payroll flexibility moving forward, almost no matter what the ownership is going to do. If you told me Blake Snell was going to cost five and one thirty, I would tell you, all right, cool. I can make that work under this year's budget. I can make that work because I know I can make it work for next year, the year after, and the year after that. I don't need the significant discount. You know what I mean? To, to make it fit, I don't need it. You could back I guess that's pretty what, hard. Absolutely, yeah. you could. Like He can make 10 or you $12 million dollars in year one and then just, and then just yeah. go 28, 30, 32. You absolutely can make that work. And about the time that he starts making you know, the bigger money, um, even Luis Castillo's deal is going to start coming off the books. Um, I think you can do it I, again. I don't think it's happening, but maybe that is what Blake Snell's waiting for. If you had to bet, though, let, let's move on from Blake Snell. If you had to bet, where does Blake Snell end up? San Francisco. Yeah, I think that's the next best bet for him. Yeah, I think that if you're Blake Snell, yeah, yep, they're a team that has a chance. They're trying to win. They want to win. They want to spend. I think you can get a pretty good deal there. Uh, if Blake Snell goes to San Francisco, where does Jordan Montgomery go? And then I have one more pitching question for you, and then we'll move on to some draft stuff. I just, you know, the, the it's Rangers tough to find a match, TV, isn't it? Well, I mean, the Rangers TV situation seems to be ironing itself out. Like it seems mm -hmm. to be getting to the point where it's cut and dry. The ink is figured out. I think he goes to Texas. You know, I, I think maybe that's mm -hmm. the reason that Jordan Montgomery is still on the board is he's waiting for that TV, the Diamond Valley thing to figure itself mm -hmm. out, get – you know, get approval from ownership, and then they they sign him. They need sure. him, man. Listen, they need him. They and do. Th they we're do. not talking about this, this. We're not talking about this this week. But I will say, as a as an unbiased Mariners fan, the Corey Seager thing should really, really concern the Rangers. Big. Time. Oh, sure, absolutely. Yep, he's that a guy is not, who's been banged up, and and now he's going to miss oh, a little time. I'm not time, even talking about that. Yeah, he's he's porcelain. I'm not, but I'm not talking about that. That injury has that is one of the. It's just like an oblique, like that is an injury that takes three months to heal, but it takes six months to get right. And if you rush it, there mm -hmm. is rupture, there is tearing. Like, I mean, shoot, we we've seen it the last couple of years in Seattle. Mitch Haniger missed an immense amount of time with adductor issues. Dylan mm -hmm. Moore missed the better part of the exact same injury happened with Dylan Moore. And he didn't play until like June, July. And then he wasn't. And then he wasn't the same. And then, until and then he didn't have his reps. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, uh, that, Seager's twenty nine years old. It, it's a it, they're they're calling it a sports hernia, but it's one of those core uh, issues that uh, that Joe's alluding to that uh, that can cause problems. And and he's he's a guy who gets banged up, and and sometimes that's just the way things go. Yeah, they should be worried about that. When you look at the Rangers' um, uh, pitching staff. DeGrom is going to miss at least half the season. I don't know where that's going to go. 
Uh, Max Scherzer looks like he's going to miss at least half the season. Have no idea where that's going to go or how well those guys are going to. I question Scherzer even when he's healthy, his value. I think if DeGrom is healthy, every pitch he throws is electric. Uh, But right now that that rotation looks like Yavaldi, John Gray, Dane Dunning, Andrew Haney, and Tyler Malley, which isn't terrible. No, Malley's out too. But it's missing the – oh, that's right. Malley's out too. But it's missing the impact – um, that Degrom was supposed to bring you, that uh, theoretically Scherzer are supposed to bring you, and it seems like I don't know. You know, is Snell a place that uh, uh, that the Rangers would go, and 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 is Texas a place that Blake Snell would go? Um, because maybe that makes just as much or more sense as uh, as Jordan Montgomery. Yeah, that'd be really uh, really interesting. Uh, Jordan Montgomery, Blake Snell, still free agents here in uh, in February. It's just just weird. I, I will say this: the Giants did trade Ross Stripling on Friday and have one roster spot available could mean nothing could be something entirely different, but it also could be we're ready to sign somebody and maybe that guy is Blake Snell. So we'll see. Uh, All right, Joe, I I, I did the count, buddy. I, uh, I pulled out a calendar like a, like a physical calendar too. Like it's 1987, you you know? Yeah, I know, right? So there's an there's one Office Depot left in the world, and I found it, and I went there, and and I got this real counter, and I held it up, and I counted all the days till the 2024 MLB draft. 163 days away to the draft. Now you knew that because your your brain just like keeps track of that shit. You knew when the 2024 draft was going to be to the minute, you know way back in like 2018 before we even knew it was going to be in Texas before we even knew the time zone it was going to be in. I get it, but I had to count these things 163 days, but it's never too soon to dive into the talent here. Um, this class is really, really interesting to me. And, and to me, it's as interesting as last year's class. It's not as good necessarily, but it's as interesting uh, because of the way that it might shape out. You could get the first six, seven, eight, nine, ten picks could be college players, and six, seven, eight of them could be hitters. Uh, that to me is interesting enough, but then it flips. Then all of a sudden there's a lot of prep guys that seem to fit in that mix, and we're a couple of months away, but I just find it fascinating. And another thing I find fascinating, Joe, is, and this isn't just public boards such as your own, but scouts and clubs tend to kind of do the same thing. A player's standing at the end of the spring, at the end of the college season, at the end of the summer, for example, isn't static. It changes between September and now. Players on your board have have changed. You have them ranked differently, maybe some of them significantly differently, between February now as you're as you're projecting forward on your next board from the last time you made an update, which I believe was September. Uh, it, it's amazing how that happens because no games are played. This is really just fall ball and workouts and training sessions and things of that nature. So maybe pull a couple of those names, you know, that are most interesting to you that maybe have jumped the most between, I guess it would be September, the last time that uh, that you made an update, and now. Uh, are there are a couple of guys that that stand out to you that have jumped quite a bit, and then maybe tell us why that player has jumped, like like what's gone into that process to jump as far as they did. Well, if anybody listening to this podcast listens to Overslot, you'll be very familiar with this name. Um, Harvard Westlake righty Duncan Marston. He's pitching tomorrow. I'm hoping to go see him. 
before area code select West. He's a six He's foot three Saturday. inch pitching Saturday, right? Sorry. Uh, against Jay Sarah. Harvard Westlake righty, six foot three, 200 pounds. LA native. He's committed to Wake Forest. This is a guy that was around the 200 range for me. And the reason is his sophomore year, actually his freshman year, no, his sophomore year of high school, uh, TJ. Mm -hmm. So doesn't okay. pitch as a sophomore. His junior year, still recovering from TJ, still kind of on the mend with some other small ailments, doesn't pitch as a junior. And on top of all this, he's committed to Stanford. So in October, he's finally back on the mound. And he decommits from Stanford, commits to Wake Forest. For those of you listening, if you're committed to Stanford, those guys don't get poached for in the draft. They go to school. Wake Forest, okay, it opens up his signability a little bit. This kid comes out 6'3", 200 pounds, touching 100 as a high schooler with an 84-mile-an-hour slider that has enormous two-plane tilt. Now, scouts want to see if the strikes are quality. They want to see they want to see him pitch 80 inning or 80 pitches. Right now he's just about 50 pitches at a time. He'll go 50 or 60 tomorrow on Saturday. That is the quintessential winter jump. Like, hey, this is a guy that hadn't pitched as a sophomore, hadn't pitched as a junior. He's back touching triple digits. And ironically, so health, so it's kind of a combination of health and the stuff is jumping. And the stuff. The right it time. doesn't hurt that he his teammate is Bryce Rayner, who is the other mm -hmm. <laughs> right-handed <laughs> high schooler in the country throwing 98. Mm -hmm. I can't imagine facing that pitching rotation on a weekend series. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine being a 16-year-old kid who is still taking his lunch to work in a plastic box, eating a Twinkie, a peanut butter and jelly I, sandwich, just hoping to have energy at 4.30 and you got to face 98 on back-to-back -back nights? I mean, I can imagine it. It just doesn't. It doesn't feel very good. <laughs> I wouldn't. If you know what I mean. I wouldn't. Uh, I would have a stomachache that weekend. I think. Yeah. So that's Duncan. That. That's Duncan Marston, who is ranked in the two twenties, six three two hundred. That's the LA area, Harvard Westlake, and he's a Wake Forest uh, commit now. So that report, his entire scouting report, has changed. I mean, the, entirely. The entire, he was. He was low to mid nineties before, and now he's he was, touching a hundred. Yeah, I mean, in the fall, in the fall, he was three to five, two to four, three to five, which was really for a guy that hadn't pitched. It was like, oh, this is a pretty good pop up arm yeah. on the West Coast. And now that he's gotten stronger and getting his reps under him, you know, the dude is tickled a hundred um, mm -hmm. from a really. And I, this is important. It's a really loose, easy operation. There's not a lot of effort behind it, and so you know. He went from a guy that was on people's radars, quite literally, to being he might be the first high school pitcher off the board. Let me ask you this. That if, fast. Just based on stuff, ignore the injury and the, and the missed time. Based on the stuff that he showed prior to this fall, mm -hmm. is that a top 80 guy, top 100 guy? Because obviously you had him ranked, you know, in the 200s, largely because he had the the Tommy John surgery thing, and you just 
you got to see it come back. You got to see some command come back. You obviously got to see the arm strength come back, the durability, the endurance within games, go 70, 80, 90 pitches, whatever it is. You got to see that. But if that's not there, if that concern's not there, just using the stuff, is is he a top 60 guy? Is he a top 100 guy? Like, where would he have fit if injury wasn't part of it? If he was three to four, three to five with that breaking ball, he would fit somewhere in the 75 to 125 range. Like, it's a loose arm. It's a good operation. I don't think, I'll put it this way. Like, if he was three to four and nothing changed, I don't think he would get signed. And the reason is some of the bumps and bruises he's had, plus the Tommy John already in the rearview mirror, plus the commitment to Wake Forest. I just don't think anybody would scrap around, like, scrap up two and a half million dollars to pay him away from that commitment. But now that it's, you know, you get to the point where it's like, this is unquestionable, you know, like he's touching a hundred and it's easy. And now all of a sudden it's like, okay. I mean, the, the, the narrative has literally changed from, are we comfortable giving this kid five? Are we comfortable giving this kid three and a half? Like what is the number with so many, uh, pockmarks, in in his rearview mirror he's going to be a fascinating guy to watch as we approach july and he gets underway saturday uh, a lot of fun interesting um i imagine you'll have updates um uh, from his uh yeah. from his outing at some point uh over the uh over the weekend or early next week uh who else on your list has made the big jump yeah i'm gonna go with one more pitcher and this is a guy that spent the last two years at ucla he was a very highly recruited uh high school pitcher but again Tommy John, uh, six foot lefty, 200 pounds, gauge jump. He's at LSU now. A lot of you probably know the name. He was a top 50 guy for me in 2021, but he's battled through injuries. He, he had nagging injuries in 2022, Tommy John in, in, in 2023, not the biggest guy, but you know, he transfers to LSU this fall under Jay Johnson. And as an industry, we go in and we look at that roster and we say, okay, Chance he's the Sunday guy, probably gets Tuesday starts. We'll see how he bounces back from TJ. This is a big year for him. Well, all of a sudden, like Gage Jump is projected to possibly be their Friday night starter, which is the guy. It's the guy at LSU. Um, huge metric stuff, a fastball with elite level carry characteristics. Uh, it's an easy operation, a low slot, big curveball, sweeping slider a changeup that's really come along. I mean, I think the biggest thing with Gage uh, looking at looking at his draft profile is TJ's in the rearview mirror and he's kind of an undersized lefty. You know, he's only six feet tall. Mm, so sure. I don't have it pulled up. You might have it pulled up. I'm not sure where he was on the last. Yeah, you had, him at, he will be, you had him at you had him at 117. Yeah, so he'll jump about 40 or 50 spots inside mm. the top. 80 inside the top 75 top 80 he looks like a guy that is going to go in the second round or comp b at this point he could jump even a little bit higher than that if he dominates the sec yeah well a chance to be the friday guys is uh impressive uh because you know it's not like lsu you know produces pitching or even has any pitching this year right like there's nothing I'm obviously joking. They, no. they, they don't have anything there, right? Like, like Luke Coleman's not there. Thatcher Hurd is not there. No, um, they, they don't have any talent. All schemes wasn't they, any they, good. Like, like <laughs> only. Uh, it, speaking of guys that uh, probably see the big leagues this year, we're going to get to that here in a minute too on the way out. 
uh, interesting. Are there any hitters on your list that made uh, that made a big jump that are worth mentioning? You know, uh, the hitters are are a little bit different. Um, as I look at my list, you know, the guy. Listen, I, I'm going to podcast about this. Actually, I'll save that for the podcast. Let me see a guy that has jumped a little bit. That's a hitter. I think a guy that I continue to get rave reviews on from the industry. I don't think I was this high on him about four months ago, but he'll be in the top 45 on my next board is, is uh, Kansas state infielder, Kalen Culpepper, um, mm. six foot one ninety. He's going to play shortstop this year at Kansas state. He was the third baseman last year. Again, don't know where he was on my last board, but, just a guy that seems to do everything pretty well. Where was he? 53. Okay. 53. So yeah, so he's, he's going to jump up about a bit. 10 yeah. spots, which is a lot, what, which what, is a lot with no baseball going on. Yeah. What's the, why, why is he moving up? Like what's the, what's the piece of yeah. information or the pieces of information that, uh, that have him moving up or maybe it's other guys moving down or a combination of a couple of things. Uh, so August and September, he was the, f- best bat, maybe the second best bat for team USA, which is, you know, a, a huge, mm-hmm. um, accomplishment considering all the, all the rest of the talent that's around him. He's put on some good weight. The fact that he's going to play shortstop speaks volumes to where not only Kansas state, but scouts think his athleticism is. And this is a class that doesn't really have a lot of quality, uh, college shortstops. Like the first ones that you're going to find are, are like Culpepper and Anthony Silva at TCU, they're probably not going to be top 25 picks. Um, but in a in a class that's just generally missing college shortstops and, and, and floor up the middle on the college side, I think Culpepper and Silva both represent that. Yeah, interesting. Um, Kansas State, obviously, uh, considering their conference uh, this year, they do have a weekend series in late March against Texas. So they'll face some... Uh, some quality uh, arms there, not necessarily any uh, any first round picks or anything. Uh, so that's interesting, and and they'll obviously play uh, Oklahoma and Oklahoma State uh, as well as TCU. So there will be some pretty good come West Virginia, some pretty good competition for uh, for Call Pepper playing in uh, playing in the Big Twelve. Uh, interesting, uh, and he's going to play shortstop. That's always interesting when a guy goes from. Uh, uh, from second base or third base to shortstop because you wonder, well, is this the actual position they should have been at? Or is it like, well, he's our best shot because colleges are trying to win games and those coaches aren't necessarily making decisions on positions based on we're going to help your draft stock. It's like, well, you're our best shot to to play shortstop. So can you can you see Culpepper actually sticking at shortstop? Is that actually a thing? Or is this he's just going to play short this year and he's probably more of a second or third baseman? I don't think I, I I don't think I can really answer that to be totally honest with you, Jason. I, I haven't watched him play up the middle. I've seen him play third base. He's got more than enough arm strength to play on the left side of the infield. He's only six feet tall. Uh, he's a bigger, thicker, muscular kid. So I don't know whether or not that's going to translate to to the six. But I'm willing to give it a shot. You know, we're willing to give JJ Weatherhold a shot. I'm willing to give this a shot. Yeah, interesting. Uh, who who would have thought twenty years ago? that the Big Ten and the Big 12, deep in the Big 12 too, not just at the top of the Big 12, but deep in the Big 12, um, they're putting up big, big time uh, baseball prospects in those conferences. Like over no. the years, you know, Big 12 more more so than the Big 10, but uh, 
man, 20 years ago, it just wasn't happening that much, uh, particularly in the Big Ten. And now it's, it doesn't surprise anybody uh, when that happens. So, hey, how about the teams in the north doing the doing a little something. All right. Um, at futurestarseries.com right now, there's an insightful piece uh, of yours, Joe. Uh, I thought uh, fastball killers, fastball murderers. Here are the players in the class who have the data that suggests, you know, they kill fastballs. Um, reminds me of a funny, uh, funny story that I'll tell uh, another day. It's a fun set of numbers, though. Uh, maybe give us a, a synopsis of that piece a little bit uh, and maybe a name or two that stand out and maybe follow it up with like, how big of a deal is this a particular metric? It's a simple metric. And mm-hmm. I think we can glean something from it. But what is that? Like, how do you take this when once you see those uh, those numbers heading into the 2024 season? Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of led with this in the in the piece. I think there's a the fastball is like a gatekeeper into professional baseball for both sides. Like in order to be a high pick, in order to be a starting pitcher, in order to um, gain the trust of scouts as a pitcher, you have to miss bats with your fastball. You have your fastball has to perform um, because there's it's it's really difficult to navigate a path toward being a productive big league pitcher with a fastball that doesn't have any teeth that doesn't do any damage. Mm-hmm. Um, the same exists for hitters while major league baseball, professional baseball continues to push further and further toward, you know, more and more breaking balls. I think 2022 is the first year ever that less than 50% of the pitches thrown were fastballs dipped under 50%. And it went even lower last year. Um, while that continues to be a trend, you still like in order to get to that point, you still have to be able to hit a fastball. If you're a hitter that they can throw 95 under your hands and you can't hit it, you're never going to get past double A. It's just it's a gatekeeper metric uh, to the big leagues, at least in my opinion. You got to have fast hands. You got to have a quick bat. So I wanted to write an article detailing guys that not only uh, made a ton of contact with fastballs, but they did damage on fastballs and they, they just, they just generally are prepared for what I would consider like level one in professional baseball. Um, do you want me to go into the guys or, or do you have any specific questions? Yeah, actually I do want to go into guy. maybe, maybe toss us the, the, the top couple of guys, but um, I, I think the the key thing, and I'll just reiterate what you just said so everybody can follow along. This isn't just who hit the fastball the most or, um, you know, who got hits on the fastball the most necessarily. This is um, how often they swung and missed at the fastball, correct? And mm-hmm. and the, the contact percentage on, on what we would probably say average or above average fastballs, and I think you cut it off at 92 miles an hour, um, legitimate yeah. fastball from a velocity standpoint. Uh, I think that's important. It's not, again, it's not just one thing. It's not just, well, this guy hit, you know, 380 against fastballs. It, there's a combination here and, 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 and some, uh, uh, some information that, that, that matters. And, and I think uh, as you think about these players, remember, this is about whiff rate on the fastball and the contact rate on 92 plus uh, with, uh, with exit velocities and all that good stuff. But check out the piece, uh, uh, fastball murderers. Which is just one of my favorite words on a baseball website. Fastball but yeah, who who stood out? Like who stood out? And, and there's two categories there, I think, for you to uh, uh, to talk about at least two. Uh, who stood out in yeah. those categories? And, and, and maybe was there someone who kind of did both? 
Yeah, so there's going to be a whole host, a huge amount of players in college baseball that can make contact with 92, like 92 miles an hour or, or faster. Though There's not a, a lack of those players, but it's finding the players that actually do damage on the fastball that I think leads to like projecting out future success. So sure. like, for example, a guy that, that I wrote about, uh, Tommy White, Tommy White is a guy that made contact about 84% of the time against fastballs over 92 miles an hour. That's above average. It's not like spectacular, but for a guy that had exit velos in excess of 112, 113 miles an hour, that's a pretty good combo. Charlie Condon ranked very, very high. The, the Georgia first baseman and outfielder, 80% contact rate against fastballs, but also, you know, hit a ball, uh, hit his 90th percentile uh, exit velo at 110. So that's a good combo. There's There's also the flip side of that, where it's like, okay, Dakota Jordan. Dakota Jordan is one of the most fascinating players in the 2024 class. Outfielder, made contact with 84% of fastballs over 92. That's really good. Had a max exit velo of 119. That's really good. Had a 90th percentile exit velo of 113. That's very good. I mean, that's that's hitting the ball as hard as Jack Caglione, who most considered to be the best slugger. But the interesting thing about Dakota Jordan is while he ranks so high in all of these, he has like a 66% overall contact rate in college baseball. So like this is a guy that even though he's high on draft boards, I'd be surprised if he got anything but breaking balls all season because he struggled Mm -hmm. so much against everything that wasn't, wasn't velocity. So if you go and look at the piece at futurestarseries.com, you'll see Dakota Jordan is in an area of the chart that's, He's totally alone. Mm-hmm. Totally alone. Yeah, he so, is. Yeah. Um, yes. All by, yeah. All by his lonesome out there. Yeah. All um, by Dakota Jordan, Mississippi State outfielder, six feet, 215, right-handed hitter, right-handed thrower. Uh, on your uh, September update, you had him at 28. Um, so at least a, a guy that's kind of uh, uh, fringe top 50 at the very least, uh, at least as of September. Be interesting to see where you have him on your next update. Um, is there... I don't know if you did this, but I'm kind of thinking about this backwards. Um, are there guys that are names for this class uh, from the college perspective that struggled with this sort of thing, that didn't make the contact, that were especially low or alarmingly low in their contact rates or their failure to uh, to put up big exit velocities against 92 plus? Yeah, I think the guy that I'll just point out one because he's the name that everyone everyone's going to know. I think the one that really comes to mind for me is Travis Bazana. Um, All of his metrics, and I think we talked about this maybe two weeks ago on this podcast. All of his metrics are off the chart, but he only made contact with about 80% of fastballs that he swung at over 92 miles an hour. So that's pretty like middle of the road, like not good, not bad. But for a guy like Bazana who doesn't have a particularly um significant like raw power tool it's Mm going to be an area of his game in 2024 that i think needs to needs to improve if you can't like if he can't handle the fastball better than an average college baseball player and he doesn't provide you plus raw power um that's going to be a a a, not a red flag but it's going to be something that scouts circle as this could be a reason that he could struggle at the next level Mm. And Oregon State, 
they obviously play a, a pretty good schedule in the Pac-12 and uh, and and in non-con. So he's going to get the opportunity to face legitimate arms uh, in that conference all year and in any of their early season non-conference. Um, be really interesting to see how that turns out and see what these numbers look like uh, at the end of the year. So, you know, if I'm if I'm reading this, I'm like, all right, this is this is this is cool. These guys are pretty good at it. These, you know, maybe these guys really aren't. Uh, Bazana, you kind of want to see more out of him if he's going to be a you know a top five pick. But Joe, fastball is just one pitch. What about what about sliders and curveballs? Well, that's a great point. Yeah. So next week. I mean, maybe I'll put it out on Saturday. Maybe I'll put it out on Sunday. I'll, I'll put out guys that murder breaking balls. Uh, I want to see, Beautiful. You know, even if you can't hit the fastball, can you can you crush spin? Because mm-hmm. as I prefaced, like slider usage is only going up. It hit its highest mark over like 23% last year. So I want to highlight the guys that, you know, maybe their hands can speed up a little bit and get to get to velocity as they get stronger, but they've already got great eyes and feel for spin. So we'll talk about that a little bit. Travis Bazana will be very well represented on that piece. It's certainly one of the strengths of his game. And I think the names that you see at the top of, of that piece, that article, most of them will uh, seem like familiar names you've seen before. Fun. That's fun. Can you, can, yeah. can you do change-ups too? Can you do like, what? Well, well, like this, this is amazing. Like that's the first thing I think. All right, well, if Bazana doesn't crush the fastball, but he's okay, does he absolutely light up break them all? It sounds like maybe he does. I'm thinking about everything, yeah. you know, like this is great. I so. could certainly like, here's the thing about change-ups in college though. Like <laughs> there's two types they're of change-up from, they're either really not competitive pitches at all, or, you know, they're just parachutes right down the middle of the plate. So there's probably also um, not a lot of them thrown. Less reliable. Like, not a lot of yeah, good ones. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Looking forward to the, uh, to the break breaking ball murderers. Yeah, spin <laughs> let's keep using it. Not killers, spin not killers, killers, spin killers, not crushers. <laughs> yeah, they're they're. No. I mean, you call it what you want, but I love the word murder. Uh, <laughs> love the word Good murder. Um, yeah, that's going to be a drop. Uh, <laughs> yes, love the word murder. It's beautiful. Uh, in addition to Joe's uh, draft board updates that are coming up at futurestarseries.com, I can confirm that uh, that he's filed his uh, his team top thirty. So we'll start pushing those out in about a week and a half or so. Uh, and I'll also come at some point on the end of that with a uh, with a preseason top 100 prospect ranking, which is uh, going to be really interesting. Uh, I've been working the text machine because as I put together uh, the the uh, the posts for those for the website, Joe, uh, I'm trying to find interesting insights on players uh, that I can add just a line or two um, for you know maybe one player per team um, and to add to those posts. So. Uh, look for that, but uh, you know, I wanted to close out with uh, with a quick back and forth here. And, and uh, later this month, maybe we'll dig into this uh, a little bit deeper. Last year's draft picks, like we expect to see a few of those top draft picks in the big leagues this year, or at least they have a chance. Like the Wyatt Lankfords and the the Dylan Cruz and the Paul Skeens, you know, those are probably the top three easily. But I talked to the Reds recently. And maybe you have two and you got the same thing. And I got the very strong impression that number 38 overall pick Ty Floyd is a guy that organization believes has a real chance late in the year as a starter to see the big leagues. 
I could not believe that I had heard that. And what, what they, and they didn't say those words exactly, but it's like, yeah, he's that kind of guy. Like we expect big things from him and we wouldn't be surprised if he hits the big leagues in 2024. Uh, I was surprised by it because if you we're talking, it wasn't Rhett Louder, the Reds' number seven overall pick. It was Floyd. Uh, yeah. If you tell me Floyd in relief, I'm like, yeah, he could pitch in relief right now at the big league level. They were talking about Floyd as a starter. Um, I ju- he just kind of struck me as a guy who, you know, they, they had some things to work on. Like you build on that fastball and, you know, pretty decent wrinkle with that slider. And then, you know, you just do what you got to do. And he just got a curveball in there too. Didn't pitch last summer. So I'm just like, really? Like this is, this is remarkable. But it got me thinking, other than those top three names, are there other names in that 2023 draft where you might drop, you know, a wager that they see the big leagues in 2024 in some capacity at some point before the end of the year, other than the the, the Cruz Lankford Skeens trio? Yeah, I mean, there's there's quite a few, honestly. Uh, I think Matt Shaw with the Cubs could see the big mm-hmm. leagues if they need an infusion. And in, I mean, he got it to Double A, uh, and he he, and he crushed the ball. Um, Brock Wilkin, who I mentioned earlier in this podcast with the Brewers, like they're going to have room for him. They're going to have room for him. And he, he produced and he was, you know, he was one of the guys that in the draft, it was like the, the hit tool, despite being so big, you know, he's like six, four two thirty, despite being so big and like appearing to have that slugger archetype, incredibly polished and patient at mm-hmm. the plate. Um, mm-hmm. The only question with him is like, is he going to play third base? So Brock Wilkin, I think, could see the big leagues. And the one that I think is going to see the big leagues is Hurston Waldrop with the Braves. Mm-hmm. Two years in a row, yeah. we've asked, do the Braves have enough bullets in that rotation, in that bullpen to, to raise a raise a title, raise a trophy? And mm-hmm. Waldrop absolutely annihilated in his debut last year. And the biggest thing with him was always going to be like sequencing and and the strike quality, but you know there's a potential there for three plus pitches. I think Waldrop actually sees the big leagues. Yeah, he could see the big leagues before the 2024 draft even rolls around. Right. Another guy that reached Double A that was a fairly high pick. He was a first rounder, Kyle Teal with Boston. He only got 39 yeah. plate appearances in Double A, but he absolutely raked in the complex league, raked in High A, uh, raked in in uh, in Double A. Maybe the idea that he's catching slows him down and he doesn't get to the big leagues in 2024. But from a from an offensive standpoint, he put up the kind of numbers that would give you some confidence that maybe that maybe he could poke his way through. So that'd be another guy throwing there. I don't know where Tommy Troy really is. The numbers aren't great. Um, yeah. and I think the same thing with the two, the two Jacobs, the two infielders out, Jacob Wilson, Jacob Gonzalez. Um they both did some things, uh, you know, last year that you know suggest polish and things like that. And I know Wilson hit pretty well in high A, but uh, yeah, and, and and Nolan Shanuel already already made his debut from uh, from the class. Yep. We uh, we had some fun with that last year, so I imagine you know he's probably uh, uh, the opening day first baseman for the Angels. Let, let me throw out a uh, a little bit of a dark horse and a true dark horse. Uh, okay. I'm not Cole Carrig. If they move him out from behind the plate. How about Cole Carrig? Late in the year, shoving his way, getting to double A in July, early August, and getting to Colorado for, for a couple of weeks in September. I mean, that guy raked at San Diego State, absolutely raked in the minors last year. Talk about a guy who murders fastballs. Uh, yeah. I don't know. Just seemed to be a guy that like might surprise us a little bit. You know, college guy can certainly hit. Um, 
I don't know. I just thought Cole Carrick was an interesting one to kind of throw in there as a long shot. Yeah, I, I could see it. Um, Colorado did work with him immediately when he arrived on making a little bit of a swing change. And because of that, I, I generally throw a little bit of pause. Like they, they want to get him just into that muscle memory before they expose him to like 90 mile an hour sliders. Um, so I, it's possible. I, I would love to see that kid in a super utility role at the big league level playing catcher. Sometimes that mm-hmm. would be, that would be such a fun profile to root for at the big league level. And he's a great guy. I've, I, I interviewed Cole before the, uh, before the, uh, before the draft, I'll throw one more at you just because it's another guy that it's like, it wasn't great in college, but it was so good last year. What about mm-hmm. Yo-Yo Morales in Washington? What if Yo-Yo comes up with Dylan Cruz? You know, hit 350. Yeah. He hit 350 in his pro debut last year, and the walks weren't like 30 or 36 strikeouts and 166 at bats. Like, that's not, that's not as no, alarming really as it good. was at times in college. Yeah. It's really He's good. A um, freak athlete, too. He was just over 20% in A ball. He was at exactly 20% in high A, and he was at 12% in his, in his very short stay in double a that's a good that's a good one you know when you make adjustments and you see the results it completely can change the player it can change his trajectory it could change his ceiling could change his uh his eta and maybe Mraz. that's a really good call there too because we know he's got the power what is that 65 power at least i mean that's uh i'm not sure if he's a yeah. third baseman either maybe he's just a first baseman but yeah if you're the nationals maybe talk yeah, about maybe a guy that murders fastballs he was one of those guys that like you talk about uh, like Dakota Jordan, like if it was out of the zone, Morales had a kind of a tough time battling and, and extending the at-bat. But if you left something in the zone for him, I mean, it was crushed. So I'll be interested to see how he handles an extended look at double-A AA or triple-A pitching and get some of those gnarly uh, sliders just off the black and you know whether or not he can stick with that. But, but I, you know, every, we talk about after the draft, like guys that impressed, guys that um, you know, made the most of their pro debuts. I don't think there was a guy that made their pro debut last year that impressed me more than Morales. Like that, that guy was probably the biggest eye opener of anybody from the draft. And he was definitely the, the, the guy that tackled his perceived weakness with the most success. I can't think of anybody yeah. else that, that went completely. I mean, when, when you jump into pro ball, and you're using the wood bat and you're facing pro pitching, you get to all the way to double A and you strike out less than you did in college. <laughs> like that's something like that. That's an accomplishment. That's something. So that's uh, that's it fun. Really yeah, should be celebrated. It was a, it was a tremendous debut. It, the, I would have thought I, I honestly, I wouldn't have been surprised if he never made it to high a last year, let alone yeah. hitting what two ninety at double A, like just kudos to yo-yo. That was tremendous. Yeah. And, and power, you know, like, like Mm -hmm. we're not talking about a bunch of home runs, but he was still hitting the ball hard and hitting the ball in the gap. And, and, uh, and uh, we know that we know the home runs. I think he had 16, uh, uh, I think he had 16 doubles and four triples in his time in the minors and, uh, 198 played appearances in 44 games. So even though there are no home runs, completely different, uh, hitter, he just played. That's, uh, that's fun. That's fun stuff. Yo-yo. Uh, by the way, if he does that before the draft, (laughs) He's, he gets taken in the top half of the first round, right? <laughs> Maybe top 10. <laughs> oh, yeah. He would have been a top 20 pick. Yeah. Yeah. That's crazy. 
Uh, good stuff there. Uh, hey, stay tuned at futurestarseries.com. We'll push out those top 30s a little later this month and uh, get as many of those uh, little nuggets as possible. But Joe's rankings are in, and we're getting them already. Hey, um, we're two weeks out, man. Like, I'm feeling I'm the ready. jitters, like the the anxiety of not just spring training, but the big time uh, college baseball matchups we're going to see early in the year with uh, uh, some of those early season tournaments uh, in, in the sunny areas of the country and uh, some of the uh, the cross conference uh, matchups we get from those. I'm 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 absolutely jacked. And now that we know what to look for, hey, can uh, can Travis Bazana just start murdering fastballs so he can get on that list? <laughs> If he I, I need. I, need Travis, I bet Bazana goes one. I bet he goes one. Yeah, I need him to be a murderer, Travis. I, I want to draft a felon. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, a baseball felon. We're just creating yeah. phrases here. I love it. That's that's a, that's another good one. Uh, good stuff. We'll talk next week, man. All right. Hey, this has been the FSS Plus podcast. So just chill to the next episode.